wonderful to be here with you guys. Um, thank you uh, for the invitation. Thank you for taking the time um, to, uh, to attend and to be attentive. Um, I want to uh, tell you a little bit about myself um, because uh, my story is international in its own way, not, not because I studied overseas, but uh, because it begins um, when my father came here 48 years ago to this campus uh, to McMahon Hall as a freshman from Iran. Um, he was uh, just not even 18 years old yet and uh, had come at a time when um, U.S.-Iranian relations were, uh, were quite close, actually. And, um, and you know, he, he would always tell me, he passed away a year and a half ago, but he, he would often tell me, you know, it wasn't always this way. There was a time when if you were Iranian on campus, that was actually kind of a sexy thing uh, to tell people. Um, it, was, uh, it, it was a time when uh, there were a lot of Iranian students actually stu studying abroad here, just as, um, as, you know, as today there are uh, students from all over the world who come, uh, including still from Iran, um, but many more back then. And, um, and my father studied here, he studied engineering, um, as an undergrad and also graduate student here at the university. Uh, my mom came to the U.S. later in the decade, um, uh, just about right before 1980, uh, to, uh, to, she'd been engaged to my dad. He'd, he'd worked uh, for an international firm, and my mom was his uh, childhood sweetheart, and they, they got engaged, and then uh, the hostage crisis uh, occurred, uh, 444 days. Unbelievable, if you think about it. For 444 days, uh, the U.S. Embassy in Tehran was held hostage, and uh, as a result, it was, um, it was a difficult time uh, for anybody uh, to be able to get, even if you were engaged or even married, to be able to get a green card to come to the United States. Uh, by the way, I want to point out that um, had the, uh, the travel ban that President Trump uh, has ordered had that been in place, neither of my parents would have been able to come here, including my dad obviously wouldn't have been able to even come here and study. Um, and, and also, you know, even, even as difficult as things were during the hostage crisis, it was not the type of um, uh, across-the-board restriction as we've seen in this uh, travel ban. Um, so, so my mom came um, uh, in 19, uh, early 1981. Uh, I was born uh, later that year. Uh, in Maryland, and I, but I was diagnosed with a rare childhood eye cancer uh, early in my childhood, which took the eyesight of my left eye as a newborn, uh, and then uh, later on came back and took the eyesight of my right eye uh, when I was eight years old. Uh, now, I, I often joke that because that was in 1989 uh, when I became blind, it, it does mean that all eight years I could see did take place in the 1980s. <laughs> so all my visual memories to this day are still from the 80s. So everyone still looks like Cindy Lauper and Boy George. Um, some people are like, who are those people? Um, um, so, so we moved from Maryland back to Washington State where we had roots from my dad's time here, and I was able to travel the road from Braille to Yale, as I often call it, um, because of uh, the opportunities that have been created for me uh, here uh, in the state uh, through uh, my family and, and, uh, and, and the community and nonprofits, but really above all uh, from the state, through our public school system, through uh, what was then Bellevue Community College, where I took 
uh, my math and science classes, um, uh, through the social services that the state was able to provide to accommodate things, to teach me how to use a cane and read braille and use software on my laptop that would read what was on the screen, all, all these things uh, I was able to do and then go on to, to uh, be able to stand in front of you today because of the opportunities that were created for me, a three-time cancer-surviving, fully-blind Iranian-American from a mixed-religion immigrant family. That's the story of America um, when, when we are at our best. Now, I, I want to tell you all that because even though we're, I'm going to talk to you about trade and um, you know, uh, international supply chains and, and all those uh, uh, kind of more cerebral topics, I, I think it's important when thinking about Washington State as a, as a global actor uh, to recognize that uh, the huge degree to which uh, there is a human face and a human, and a human element uh, and a human factor, as Graham Greene would say, to, uh, to, to our internationalism, to our cosmopolitanism, our globalism, uh, that the, um, the businesses, and I understand some of you are uh, going out and, and learning from uh, some of our global businesses, uh, how they operate, that they're bringing people in through the, uh, the, 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 what has truly made this country great, uh, our uh, policy of immigration that allows brilliant and hardworking people with a commitment uh, to uh, improving their own lives and the world uh, to come and make our state, our country a better place. That, that immigration, whether it's through student visas uh, that like allowed, what allowed my, my dad and later my mom to come here, um, uh, allowed him to become an engineer for the Boeing company uh, for most of his professional life, uh, helping to uh, grow our economy here and, and bring his education and intelligence to bear, or my mom, who practiced law for many years and was appointed to, a, to be Superior Court Judge by Governor Inslee in 2013, um, and taught me the first, the, the meaning of public service. Um, we know that being a global actor uh, also means having a, uh, an approach towards immigration that recognizes uh, not just the, the inherent humanity and compassion uh, that, that we're called to bring, but also uh, the tremendous economic and, uh, and educational, cultural, and social value of being a global state. Um, so, so I, as I grew up as a kid with a disability, uh, I, I, I had to learn to advocate and fight for my own inclusion in so many ways, as you can imagine. And, and as I grew older, I realized, and I, you know, I benefited from. If I had more time, I'd tell you stories about times when. Um, I was, I was excluded from various activities or classes, and but I, I benefited from a mom who really believed strongly. She grew up watching Perry Mason in Tehran, I always wanted to be a lawyer when she grew up, and, was a, and taught me how to be a fighter for my own inclusion. And so, um, so that was a struggle that I had, but as I got older, I realized there's so many people who uh, don't have the benefit of a 24-hour-a-day pro bono attorney as a mom, <laughs> and who are being excluded from our educational or economic uh, or even our political systems, uh, maybe not because they're blind, but for other reasons, because of the color of their skin, or gender, or sexual orientation, or identity, um, religion. And so uh, I decided that what I wanted to do in, in my life was to uh, be that advocate, uh, be the person who would help them out. And so I went on to law school and 
And as you heard, the legislature, now I get to do that at the statewide level where I kind of pompously call uh, myself, or we, we have called me the chief opportunity officer, uh, the COO of the state, which is a play on the fact that I'm the number two official um, to the governor, who's, who's obviously the CEO. Um, and even though it's a little bit self-satisfied as a term, um, COO uh, really comes from my belief that uh, what we need from government, we're a country of tremendous prosperity. We know that. Uh, in many ways, our entire world uh, today, writ large, has tremendous prosperity. The problem is that not every corner, not every part, not every aspect or fa facet of society um, is uh, and constituency, to put it in political terms, has access to those opportunities. And so our, our vision for this office of Lieutenant Governor is how can we take the prosperity that's, uh, that clearly exists here and expand opportunities to, to access that around the state, which also means for us around the world. Uh, you know, most people when they meet me these days are too polite to ask the question that's on their mind, uh, which is what does a lieutenant governor actually do? Um, so it's different in every state, and it's different uh, even here from, from office holder to office holder. So briefly I'll tell you, I, I serve as president of the state senate, so I preside over the Senate, irrespective of which party is in the majority, um, which has a number of different subsidiary roles, including deciding which bills get voted on by the Senate. Um, I chair the committee that decides that. Um, number two, I serve as the acting governor uh, whenever Jay Inslee leaves the state. And um, that can be, for governors, as many as 60 to 70 days a year. Uh, and I partner with him on a number of different initiatives as well. And then third, I run my own office. I have my own office, Office of Lieutenant Governor, and we work on a handful of issues by law and by, by preference. Uh, and uh, chief among those, historically, and for us, has been economic development and international trade. Uh, why is this so important that, that you need the Lieutenant Governor to focus so heavily on this? The Governor also works internationally, and sometimes the Secretary of State does as well. Um, and, uh, and the reason is that for us, our economy, the way it's developed, has been uh, global from the very beginning. So if you think about why is it that we became uh, a hub for building airplanes? Why is it for, if this was law school, I would be Socratic, but we don't have time for that today. Um, you know, why is it that we became a, a it's, it's not because, it's not because like the Wright brothers lived in Seattle, right? Why did we become a hub? Well, we became a hub because um, first, uh, for, first and foremost, um, we had access to uh, cheap power, uh, hydroelectricity, um, uh, we had access to timber, uh, we had access to metals. That's, that, was our, that was our kind of initial foray. But we weren't success. The Boeing company wasn't the Boeing company that we think of a global uh, uh, titan of industry until we got to the World Wars, specifically the Second World War, when the fact that we have a Pacific coastline uh, meant that our seaports uh, could bring uh, vital basic materials uh, to our shores 
uh, and that uh, our planes could be used uh, and deployed. We could, first of all, we could do flight simulations and trainings, and then the McCord Airfield uh, here down in uh, Joint Base Lewis McCord uh, could be used uh, as an Air Force facility for deployment. Um, that's, it was through that relationship, that, that placement, that geography, uh, that we became uh, leaders in aerospace. Shipping. Access, again, access to timber, access to the Pacific Ocean through Puget Sound, uh, made us uh, a hub for the Navy, uh, but also for shipbuilding. Believe it or not, it used to be Kirkland, uh, the shores of Lake Washington, where they would build ships, uh, and then through the Ship Canal, obviously, then take them uh, up to, the, uh, to uh, Puget Sound. Uh, down to the south. Uh, more recently, the companies uh, that, uh, that have, have made us famous now include Microsoft, Amazon, Starbucks, Costco, all global companies. And the dynamic for us, when we think about trade, uh, though nationally, you know, trade is, uh, we often talk about a trade deficit, right, meaning uh, more imports than exports. Um, in our state, we enjoy uh, the most significant trade surplus anywhere in the country. So in 2016, uh, and it, it's a little bit, there are different ways to calculate this. Uh, for example, uh, you may not have thought of tourism as an export, but it's, it's counted by, uh, by economists as, an, as a macroeconomist as an export. But depending on how you count, on, how you count it, you have on the order of 80-some billion dollars worth of exports from Washington State and only about 40 billion in imports. Um, so that over a two to one trade surplus. So there are states that are losers um, and, and feel uh, as though and recognize that they have lost uh, in some way because of the uh, shift in the economy towards globalization and towards uh, uh, automation. But we're not one of them because uh, the seven core Areas of economic growth for our state are all areas uh, that benefit from uh, international trade uh, and our, our centers of global export. Uh, those seven core areas uh, are aerospace, information and communication uh, technology, right, including software, uh, the life sciences, uh, where this university really is the, the hub of that uh, sector for us. Uh, clean energy. Again, UW plays a strong role. Uh, we, are, we have the cleanest energy grid uh, anywhere in the United States, uh, and uh, that's a huge uh, growth area for us, and clearly globally, since uh, climate change is, is, after all, a global challenge. Um, and, and as the governor will always say, a global opportunity. Agriculture. People don't think of us as an ag state, right? They, you, know, you think of, of agricultural states in the U.S., you're thinking of Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas. Um, but uh, over 10% of our economy uh, is agriculture. Uh, we are, and you guys better be telling everyone you know this, that we are the second uh, um, uh, leading producer of wine in the United States after California. Uh, we think it's the best value, um, uh, and, uh, and in some instances the best quality. I, I have to say, when I, when I travel internationally to brag about our state, um, I, I, I always tell people, you know, in, in 2016, Wine Spectre magazine, I think it, was, it, it might have been 2015, uh, ranked uh, our 
a Bordeaux blend made in Washington State as the number one Bordeaux in the world, ahead of Bordeaux's from Bordeaux. Um, so that's how good our wines are, uh, but that's all part of our ag economy. Apples, cherries, wheat, hay, hops, um, uh, as well as uh, fish and seafood. Uh, the defense sector, uh, again, Boeing, but um, military contractors uh, of all types, and of course our, uh, our bases, Navy, Air Force, Army, uh, the presence um, that they all have here, and then maritime uh, goes without saying that that's a global uh, sector for us. So these are the areas that we're focused on. We know that we're doing a great job because we have this great trade surplus, and yeah, big part of that 80-some billion dollars is airplanes. They are expensive, so they tend to, you know, kind of, you know, ratchet that numerator up. Uh, but when you look at exports, you look at how diversified our set of exports are. Um, it's uh, it's actually quite reassuring that we're not that dependent on one particular uh, company or one particular export. That uh, that we uh, enjoy. Uh, a, a great uh, trade portfolio across these sectors, including the service uh, industry. So let's be honest though, um, trade is not uh, a, a universally beloved idea, it's a controversial idea, uh, or, and, and certainly free trade um, or free trade principles can be very controversial. And, uh, and the reason for that, I think it's important, and you guys may have already studied this or talked about this, so maybe I'm rehashing this, but I mean, the, uh, when you look at what happened uh, in the, after World War II, uh, a series of, of uh, international organizations were established uh, for the purpose of, first and foremost, making sure that we don't have a third world war that would be as devastating as the ones that had killed so many hundreds of millions of people. Um, from both world wars, uh, but also so that we would have a system of economic um, and demographic and political and social exchange uh, that would allow people to flourish uh, and to, to begin to enjoy human rights in places where they hadn't had that. And so, you know, the United Nations, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, um, these were all created uh, in, in the wake of uh, and the predecessor to the World Trade Organization in the, in the wake of World War II uh, in order to better uh, 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 prevent warfare and to create the rules uh, for international participation and for trade. Uh, those institutions have served um, relatively well at doing that. I think it's important to recognize, if you read um, Steven Pinker's new book, Enlightenment Now, uh, you know, he points out what, what others have as well, which is that uh, though we have problems, uh, we have a, a form of international terrorism, uh, networked uh, terrorism that confounds us uh, uh, still, uh, though certainly, uh, knock on wood, not uh, to the degree that I think we had feared after 9-11. Though we have uh, a climate change as the single greatest existential threat to humanity, global challenge, we have migration, uh, refugee crises, and, and, and always um, the risk of infectious disease and other challenges, that we have those, um, but when you think about uh, kind of traditional conflicts between and among state actors, 
uh, we're at an all-time low in human history in terms of how much war there is, right? Militaries uh, fighting one another. Um, thank God we have managed uh, to fend off uh, another use of an atomic or a nuclear weapon uh, since the tragedies of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and so in, 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 you know, in, in so many ways, you know, the, the end of the Cold War, uh, the lifting out of poverty of billions of people in Asia and Eastern Europe and, and even in Africa to a lesser extent, but still significantly, and, and in Latin America, all of this is really good news and in large part due to these global institutions. But what's also happened is that uh, a confluence of uh, factors uh, chief among them, the opening up of China, largest human population under, under one roof, so to speak, um, in a, uh, to the op that opening up of China to, to the global economy uh, in a context in which a kind of domestic authoritarian regime is combined with uh, a, a, a neoliberal uh, capitalist uh, free market approach. Um, leading in the, in the 80s and 90s and, and to this day to um, the outsourcing of jobs from the United States in the manufacturing sector. Um, you saw somewhat of the same thing with the service sector into India and, and uh, Southeast Asia, uh, but nowhere as, as devastating as what you've seen uh, to the manufacturing sector. And, and to understand the importance of that, you need to recognize that um, for those who did not get a college degree, uh, or were not college educated, um, you know, women, for one thing, largely kept out of the workforce until uh, recent decades. Um, and men, without a college uh, education, uh, had the guarantee of, or, or maybe not the guarantee, but often the promise of a good family wage union job in either the building and construction trades or in manufacturing. Uh, and so when you take manufacturing and you largely uh, outsource it because of uh, China and uh, Southeast Asia and some of the other places, uh, you know, Mexico uh, to some degree, um, you have uh, job displacement uh, here in the US. Uh, you, have, you have job gains in other places, but, uh, but I represent Americans, so this is, this is what we're, we're talking about today. Um, secondly, uh, some industries, because of their environmental footprint, um, as we uh, implemented uh, what I consider to be very good environmental protections, uh, were uh, not feasible uh, or deemed themselves not to be feasible and have become less um, uh, uh, value-add, and so either have ceased to exist and, and converted to other sorts of businesses, or have gone somewhere where they can pollute in peace, uh, which I think is a shrinking number of places in the world, because now China is even uh, more aggressive than we are on fighting climate change. Uh, and then third, and I think this is actually the most powerful, though in many ways most problematic to talk about, in, especially in a, in a bumper sticker and a stump speech, is technology. Um, the very automation and, and, um, and artificial intelligence that has been developed on this campus and campuses at Berkeley and Stanford and MIT and elsewhere that's led to great businesses like the ones we have here in our state and in Silicon Valley have led to a change in labor demand so that more routinized work 
um, that can be done through software algorithms, uh, we don't need people to do. And so uh, these all have worked in tandem with one another so that, you know, uh, I'll give you an example. So that if you're a factory, uh, if you're an assembly uh, line here uh, in uh, the United States, and in order to compete with lower labor and environmental standards in another part of the world um, to sell products, and keep in mind that there used to be a time when we really only thought about American and European consumers. Now there's consumers everywhere, including a huge and growing Chinese middle class. If you want to sell products at a, at a uh, cheaper price than your global competitor when they have 24-hour-a-day factories and lower environmental standards, the only hope you have of doing that in a country where we have a minimum wage, uh, where we have environmental standards, is to, um, is to adopt new technologies. That's the only way to compete. Um, and so as we do that, um, uh, the, the cycle of competition means that, that products get made cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, uh, which is good for the co cost of living, um, but uh, jobs are made more obsolete, they're obsolesced. Um, and so that's what's happened in many parts of our country. Where has that not happened? It's not happened quite so much here in Washington State, whereas we're, we're huge beneficiaries of trade. Uh, we're also huge beneficiaries of the switch to the knowledge economy and the technology economy. But why, and, but, and I want to say, but it's not happened universally in our state. There's places in our state where um, there has been displacement due to these factors. So what's the key difference and what can we do about it going forward? Uh, because I'm not somebody who believes that um, we ought to uh, or could, if, even if we did, uh, turn back the clock. I told my own stories so that you understand how important I think international relations are. And so um, whether it's on the far left or in the Oval Office, uh, this idea that we can do it all on our own at this point makes no sense. You all know that or else you wouldn't be studying Jackson School. Um, so I'm not somebody who believes we can do that. I am somebody who believes that those who um, are supporters of increased international trade um, have dropped the ball in addressing and thinking about displacement. And to some degree, maybe you could give them a pass and say they didn't realize what would happen when these things all happened at the same time, China plus Amazon at the same time. Maybe they didn't realize it. Uh, the fact of the matter is that when China decided to go global, they were able to say, you know what, we're going to go global, we're going to move people from farms into cities, they're going to learn how to build things. Um, increasingly, we're going to get good at that as we build a middle class from doing that. Uh, and by the way, we'll let you go home and visit your families twice a year. As, as we get better at doing that, uh, we will become exporters and, you know, uh, Malaysia will make things for us. They had a plan and they've implemented that plan. Our plan in the United States from the Clinton and Bush administrations was we're going to open up to China and, and, and NAFTA and other trade agreements. Um, things will be cheaper at Walmart, okay? Um, and some people may lose their jobs, but this is America. They're resilient. They'll go find another job. Like, I think the idea was that, like, if you're, if you're, if you're making jewelry in Rhode Island, which we don't do anymore, uh, and you lost your job because they're doing it in China, that you'd go and uh, work at a data center, right? That like that, like we're, you know, economy changes, that's fine, we'll, people will be resilient. What turned out to be the case is that 
Uh, Americans like to stay living where they live near their family. They're more place-bound than we realize. Um, men in particular um, uh, took a huge kind of dignitary status hit in feeling that the thing that they could do uh, no longer had meaning or value, could be done cheaper by a computer, piece of software, or overseas, uh, and so entered into some, some cycles of mental health and, and substance abuse problems. These are all dynamics we could not have foreseen. Um, what we need to do about it now, going forward, is say, rather than turn back the clock, let's recognize what's made Seattle and San Francisco and New York and Boston and Austin and Denver and uh, Atlanta uh, and in Los Angeles, what's made San Diego, what's made these places work? Well, we know what's made them work. It's access to higher education. It's access to training and, and, and the kind of critical thinking and yes, I will take uh, the point about the liberal arts, because it's not just STEM. Uh, it, it is about learning those things that the computers will do last, or that work, uh, or that are most necessary in person. Right? So that's the way to stay ahead of the, of, the, of the changes brought by trade and technology. So when you hear people say, quote, college isn't for everyone, and I often ask the person who's saying that, did you go to college? Turns out they did. Are you sending your kid to college? Turns out they are. So who are they talking about? Someone else's kid. You know, I, I've decided to, to push back against that. Because as someone who believes in an international regime of trade and collaboration and immigration, I recognize that for us to be, continue to be winners in our state and for other states to be winners in it, we cannot just sit back and say, people will find their way. We need to promote and expand opportunities for higher education everywhere uh, to stay ahead of, of, uh, of, of the displacement that's, uh, that has been a reality. So that's what I want to leave you with is uh, we uh, are uh, successful in this regard, um, notwithstanding a lot of the uncertainty that President Trump has brought into uh, these trade relationships in recent weeks. Uh, we are successful, uh, not everywhere in our state and certainly not everywhere in our country but we know the answer. Uh, it's not running away from, but rather embracing a more global world and preparing ourselves uh, in as uh, intentional and deliberate a way as possible uh, for the jobs, not of today, certainly not of yesterday, uh, but of 25 to 50 years from now.